starting in Titus. I've been, before we were even in the Psalms, I wanted to be in Titus, but I wanted to take some time and, and work through this. It's just a very short letter. It's three chapters long. You could probably sit and read it in, in uh, 15 minutes or so, and that might be something you want to do as we will be in Titus for the next little while. Um, well, I want to take it in, into these portions, as I said, six weeks, giving myself one buffer week just in case. But six weeks is the goal, and we're going to walk through this book. Uh, this is one of the pastoral epistles that Paul wrote, or uh, pastoral letters that Paul writes to uh, someone who is in a pastoral uh, position, uh, along with the books of Timothy and First uh, and Second Timothy. There, he's writing there to them about some things particular to their situation. And I think that we, as we discover the original intent of the letter, then we can see how it makes sense to us and how it fits into us. This morning, we're really just looking at the greeting, really just looking at the opening lines. And I want to give you a little bit of a background to why this was being written to Titus and why this is being written uh, in, uh, at all, why it's even in the, in the Scriptures for us. But I will tell you that there's a lot here so much that I don't think I'm going to finish four verses this morning. So I've got, you've got the outline, you've got the verses. There are a lot of verses. I'm not going to have you turn to them, but I, I, I hope that you will look at them and see them because there are some things here that I think we, we would normally just skip over because it's the opening, it's the greeting. We rush through that and we get to the teaching, uh, but at least in this case, uh, we would be doing ourselves a disservice, missing out on some very, very deep uh, stuff in these four verses to Titus. Paul and Titus, sometime before this letter, had gone to an island called Crete and started several churches in the towns there. Crete is in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a part of Greece today. And it's just a, kind of, if you look on a map, uh, it's it's uh, just below Turkey and Greece there, uh, quite, a, quite a sizable island there in the Mediterranean Sea. Crete was known for its wickedness and immorality. Uh, this uh, Paul even quotes uh, one of the Cretan philosophers in verse number 12. He says that this guy says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's not uh, you know, proud to be an American. You weren't proud to be a Cretan. Uh, at least to be, uh, at least in the outside world, uh, an ancient historian uh, from the a few centuries before Christ came, named Polybius, he wrote this about Crete: that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Crete had quite the reputation. You may have heard of the philosopher Cicero. Cicero had an opinion about Crete. About 50 years before Christ came, he wrote that moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Crete was, as uh, my study Bible has a note there, it says it was proverbial for the, in the ancient world for immorality. Much like many of the other cities that, are, that we have in the Bible, we think about the church at Berea, the Bereans. And if you're in a Christian circle, you may recognize that that's, they were known because they studied the Word and they listened to Paul, but they also looked in the Scriptures. They searched the Scriptures to see whether those things were so. That was a reputation that Berea had, at least the church in Berea. Uh, we think about the reputation that places like Sodom or Nineveh 
or uh, places uh, like of that of that uh, character. They're they're known for a particular sin or a particular setting of wickedness and immorality. Well, Crete, though maybe not as popular to us in this day, was very high on the list for uh, worst places to live. I guess you could I guess you could write it there. But it was in this very same place that Paul had gone and by the power of the Holy Spirit established several churches, which means that many people were converted, that many people came to faith in Christ. They placed faith in Christ. They were converted. They were transformed and forever changed by the gospel. And wherever there are Christians, there there are churches. And so Paul is starting these churches with Titus's help and no doubt there were some other people there. And you think about that for a moment and just that, that recognition of those facts that there is no place that is too far gone for the Gospel to have an effect. There's no place that's too hard or too wicked or too worldly or too immoral or, or whatever it may be that the Gospel cannot take effect, cannot have uh, uh, make a difference. We had the missionary on Wednesday night from the Voice of the Martyrs and he was talking about uh, people doing ministry in, in places like Iran and, and India and places where it's hard and, and dangerous even to, uh, to be a Christian. And yet there are many there who are uh, professing Christ and boldly standing up for Christ. And here there are many Christians, Cretan Christians, who are kind of going against the flow now, living as Christians in a very ungodly and very wicked world. But that means that they're going to have to live in this world, but no longer live like this world. They might have been like this at one time, but the gospel changed them. And they can't live this way any longer. They can't have this reputation of being a liar, an evil beast, a, a, a glutton, a lazy person, a person uh, with, with immoral behavior and, and principles. They have to live differently now. They, they now need to live for Christ as, as lights in a dark place. Paul believed, as do the, as, because the Scriptures teach, that every Christian can and should live for Christ regardless of where they live. Not only that, but they are going to mature in faith and in godliness, even in a place like Crete. Now, I don't think that Crete uh, looks like Sherman. I think Crete was probably a lot, a lot further off than that, but I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to understand how bad of a place Crete could have been. May have been. Uh, but we look at our society today and I don't think it's, it's too far of a stretch to say that we're not very far off. So Paul has started these, these churches. He started these, he's met these people. They've, they believed the gospel. They started these churches, but Paul has left. And Paul does not expect that these Christians will kind of just fizzle out now that there's no church. There's no one to take him on. He has left Titus. If we look down in verse number five, we see there that he left Titus in Crete as he moved on to continue other uh, church plants, he left Titus in Crete for the purpose of continuing the work that was started there. He was going to uh, continue working with his churches, specifically strengthening them, uh, adding to them what remained, putting what remained in order. Specifically, uh, that task would be appointing elders in, his, in their churches. But how was this going to happen? How are these churches going to survive in such a dark spiritual place? How are these churches going to thrive and stand for Christ in a place where immorality and wickedness 
are the norm. How are these Christians ever going to make it? Well, Paul writes this letter and gives us the answer that it's ultimately with sound Bible teaching. That's how it's going to work. Through the power of the Gospel. Paul has already explained this to Titus before he left, but now he's writing Titus to remind him and everybody that will read this letter that the Gospel that changed your life will continue to change your life. And he's writing to Titus that to remind him to continually teach these people, these churches, and these elders whom he's to point, uh, that, that, uh, these truths. In other words, he's talking to them about how to have a healthy church. And so that's kind of the, the title of the series is uh, Healthy Churches. How to have full, healthy, uh, churches full of healthy and godly Christians. And so in the opening lines of Paul's letter, it sounds a lot like what he writes in all of his other letters. If you're familiar with, with Paul's writings, uh, you, 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 you may be tempted to just kind of skip over that because he says this, a lot of the same stuff all of the time. He talks about grace and peace and he talks about him being a servant of the Lord and, and an apostle and all those things. But if we slow down and we think about that for a moment, there's a lot of stuff that he is talking about because actually in the book of Titus, he gives more than his standard greeting. In fact, only Romans and Galatians have a longer greeting than Titus. And think about all of the letters that Paul wrote. This is one of the top three longest openings where he's not just saying, hey, Titus, it's Paul. How you been? Let me move on into what I really wanted to say. He spends four very lengthy verses giving us, uh, giving Titus and us, by extension, some very helpful teaching. Therefore, we need to pay attention to what he's saying and not simply just read it as a greeting. Now, Paul is giving his qualifications as an apostle for uh, to, maybe to remind Titus that he has the authority to speak in this way, but also because these letters were not just meant for Titus, but to be spread throughout the churches, and it was read by the early churches. And so we're reminded as we read that this is given by someone who has the authority to say such things and direct us to such things. And so when he talks about his apostleship, he is giving his qualification. And But in this letter, he is also explaining to us the role that he sees he has in God's plan. And then he, and then consequently, he's giving uh, Titus some direction on his participation in God's work in Crete. And so we look at verse number uh, one, and we see here uh, just just a lot of things that are being said. And, and honestly, I, I could see that we could spend a lot of time in just verse one, and maybe have an entire sermon from verse one. But that's I'm going to resist the temptation to do that. But look at verse number one, and he writes, "Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ." Who is Paul? This is how I want to try to explain this this morning. Uh, who is Paul in, in, in these words? And who is Titus? And what is Paul's ministry all about? Well, we see at the verse part of verse number 1 that Paul explains who he is with two separate terms. First, he says he is a servant of God. Now, a servant to us is, is a little different in meaning than a servant back then. In fact, the word is more literally translated the slave of God. We don't talk about slaves in a, in a positive way in our culture. They have a very negative connotation because we're talking about people being the property of another person. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He is the slave of God. He is the property of God. He is not his own, but belongs body and soul to God. On Wednesdays when we do release time, I teach 
the New City Catechism. I've taught it for a couple of years, and I'm starting it again this year. I know the boys' Sunday school class, they did this for a little while. And the very first question uh, in this catechism is this. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting at. We do not belong to ourselves. We, as Christians, belong to God. He wrote in Romans 14, 7, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's saying to the, to the believer and to Titus and of himself, we are redeemed. We are, that means we've been bought. That means we are the property of another. We are not ourselves. We are not our, our own masters. We have been freed from sin, but not free to serve ourselves. Not free to do whatever we please. We've been freed to serve another. Listen to how he explains it in Romans 6. Most of us are familiar with Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the verse right before it, he says, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of uh, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice what he says there. You've been set free from sin and have become the slaves of God. Now, it's a good thing that God is a, is a good master. He's a good Lord. But He is the Lord and He is the Master. And if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a believer, a Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, then you belong To God, just as Paul says, I am the slave of God. But next he says, I am an apostle of Jesus. We see that word a lot. uh, And and, and oftentimes, actually, it's uh, if if we were to test ourselves and say, well, what is an apostle? We might uh, struggle with with words to to try to explain that in a a clear way. But very simply, uh, when Paul talks about being an apostle, he is uh, indicating that he, uh, of his mission, that he is one who is sent. That's what apostle is, is, is someone who is sent. Uh, we're thinking of the 12 apostles, Peter, James, John, and all those guys. Uh, they, and Paul was the, saw himself as the last apostle. They were sent on a mission. But uh, by also saying that he is an apostle, he is implying that he has this apostolic authority. Jesus gave the apostles specific authority that we do not have that he gave, uh, and Paul was one of them, and as, a, as one who is sent, he has a mission and he has authority to complete, carry out that mission. He was one of the twelve chosen by Jesus to continue the work and to spread the gospel message. The early church, the apostles within the early church, uh, were those who kind of led the church. They, they, were, they had the authority over the church. They governed it under the authority of Christ, of course. And they had the authority, uh, my study Bible writes, they had the authority to speak and write the words of God equal in authority to the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, the early church looked to the apostles 
as the leaders of their church. Of course, they were looking to Christ, but the human leadership, they first looked to the apostles and they, they listened to their instruction and they held to their instruction as closely as they held to the Old Testament scriptures. Most, most notably, you think about Acts 2.42, when it talks about the, the, the day of Pentecost and all these people be, uh, get saved, they follow after Christ, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And if, if the apostles hadn't been given such authority, then it would have said something along the lines of they, voted, they devoted themselves to Jesus' teaching, to the, to the teaching of the Bible, but it says the apostles' teaching. And if you think about it, the New Testament, much of what we have, what we call the New Testament, is written by an apostle. Is written by someone who is given this authority to teach and explain the words of God and to give instruction and direction and, and rebuke in, in, in ways of error and all of those and all of that matter. But this is, this is what Paul is and this is, uh, this is Paul's mission. And so he writes to Titus as a slave of God, as the servant of God in his, in his work, in his service, his ministry, but he also writes as one who has authority. So now we want to understand, well, what is Paul's ministry? What is, what is the reason that Paul is an apostle? Why is Paul an apostle outside of the fact that God made him one? Well, he tells us there in verse number one. He says, I am an apostle, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So it's for the sake of the elect. Paul is an apostle for the sake or the benefit of these people called the elect. We have to ask ourselves, who are the elect? Well, if you've been in church circles a long time, uh, the word elect is kind of a buzzword. It's a word that makes you perk up, and I think a lot of people uh, hear the word elect and immediately jump to certain conclusions about what that does or does not mean. I think it's important that we take some time and study that, and so we have, I have several things I want to show you just because elect is a very confusing term. It's a very controversial term to some. Uh, it's a term that uh, d- divides people unnecessarily, I think. Uh, and it's a term that I think a lot of times, because it's so controversial, because it's so confusing, we tend to distance ourselves from it. We tend to, 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 to stay away from that one. We don't, you, know, you don't talk about uh, money and politics at Thanksgiving, and you don't talk about the elect in church either, okay? But the, the word is in the Bible. And so it's, it's, it's to our benefit and uh, to talk about it, and it's to our detriment if we overlook it or ignore it. Now, I've given you a lot of verses. I'm going to read them. I'm not going to ask you to turn to them. But if you listen, and if you want to jump ahead and look at one or two of them as I'm reading them, I want to show you that election is in the Bible. The word elect, the the idea, the doctrine of election is in the Bible. And election, in a nutshell, is a term that is is used to describe God's activity in salvation. It, 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 It helps us to understand what God did in salvation, this idea of election. If you think about the, the political uh, idea of election, you get a little of a sense of what's going on in a spiritual sense of election. Now, in Old Testament, uh, the Bible uh, talks about election. They were very familiar with the idea of God's elect. Uh, we see in Deuteronomy 7, God says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. That's the word elect is also synonymous with the word chosen. He says in Deuteronomy 14 in verse 2, You are a holy people, a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He has chosen Israel 
and not other people. He says in Psalm 33, 12, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. Now we skip ahead to the New Testament in Jesus' time. And in the New Testament, Jesus Himself talks about the elect. He talks about election. He writes in Matthew 24, Matthew records His words. Jesus says, and He's talking about the great tribulation. He's talking about in the last day, But it says, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He keeps talking about these people, the elect. He uh, goes on in verse 31 to say, the, when, uh, he talks about when he comes back, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now later on, he goes on in, in the Gospel of John uh, to talk about this idea of those whom he has chosen. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In a, in a nutshell, and I'm very, and it's very short and, and, and summary because it's, it, it, there's a lot more to say about it, but the idea of elect are those the people who are, who are chosen by God and given to Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about the elect. He, he says maybe more than anybody else in the New Testament about it. He writes in Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He writes in Colossians 3, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. He's talking to Christians there. He writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He write, uh, when Peter writes his first epistle, he writes to those who are elect exiles. Later on in, in chapter 2, he calls these people a chosen race. In Second Peter, he encourages the brothers to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And finally, in Revelation 17, we read that the Lamb is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who with Him are called chosen, are are called and chosen and faithful. So we have this idea of election. We have this term, elect, and it's in the Scriptures. It's it's littered in the Scriptures, this idea of of people who are elect. And and in the the Old Testament, it was understood as as, as plain plain, theology, and in the New Testament, we see it just as clearly. In our day, it's a bit controversial, as I said, but in a nutshell, those who are elect are those who are chosen by God and given to Jesus. In the Old Testament, they recognize the elect as the nation of Israel. Today, we recognize it. It is the church. It is those who are in Christ. It is those who are believers, the Christians, a lot of different ways to say it. And I thought this was very interesting because I wanted to do some, some preparation to, to explain some of this to you. And I came across uh, some writing from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher back in the 1800s. And in 1862, he preached a message 
on election. And I, and I, I was smiling as I read through the whole thing because it was uncomfortable for Charles Spurgeon to preach on election as it is in our day. Spurgeon said this in his sermon. God is the universal agent and doeth as he will, and his will is supremely good. He is the superlative agent. And man, acting according to the devices of his own heart, is nevertheless overruled by that sovereign and wise legislation which causeth the wrath of man to praise him, and the remainder thereof he restrains. How these two things are true, I cannot tell. It is not necessary for our good, either in this life or the next, that we should have the skill to solve such problems. I'm not sure that in heaven we shall be able to know where the free agency of man and the sovereignty of God meet, but both are great truths. And I felt a little bit comforted in knowing that Charles Spurgeon, and he spent uh, three paragraphs before this saying, I know you don't want me to preach about this, but it's here, and he talked about the benefits and the, and, of, of doing such. As mysterious and as confusing and as controversial even as it may be to talk about, election is in the Bible and we must not ignore it. Uh, Lee and Griffin, two men who wrote uh, an excellent commentary, it's helpful to me, they wrote that although this element contains mysteries for human understanding, election is biblically emphasized as a central part of God's dealing with His people. It is clearly evident in His choice of Israel and His choice of the church. I'm not spending the entire time talking about election because that's not exactly what Paul is, is trying to get across here, although it, it, he just understood it and he implies it in his, in his speaking to, to, uh, to, to, to Titus here. But at the very least, I think we can conclude on the idea of election. If you don't understand it, then that's okay. And if you're confused by it, then that's okay too. But in Romans chapter 11, Paul has just finished writing Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, which are maybe uh, some of the most uh, especially dealing with election. Romans 9 and Romans 10, the idea of, of, of an elect people. And at the end of explaining all of that, Paul writes this in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable are His ways. So when we, we, while we consider such topics such as this, this morning we were talking about the, 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 the Trinity and, and how God can be, there can be one God in, in essence and three in persons, uh, we can at least come to the conclusion, at the very least, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. His ways are unsearchable, his, and His judgments are unsearchable, His ways are unscrutable. God is much smarter than I am, and God knows what He is doing. But notice that what Paul says here, that his ministry or his apostleship is for the sake of the elect, but in three specific ways. In the areas of faith and knowledge and then in godliness. And it starts with faith. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. He says later on, how shall they hear then without a preacher, someone to preach to them? And so Paul sees that his ministry is for the sake of the faith of those who are elect. Then he goes on and he talks about the knowledge of the truth of God. I like this. I came across this another another uh, quote. It was by A.W. Tozer. And he wrote this, that the Christian is strong or weak depending upon how closely he has cultivated the knowledge of God. Paul was anything but an advocate of the once-done automatic school of Christianity. He devoted his whole life to the art of knowing Christ. Progression in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. And such experience requires a whole life devoted to it and plenty of time spent at the holy task of cultivating God. 
God can be known satisfactorily only as we devote time to him. So this is how Paul saw his ministry. My ministry is to serve God for the benefit or for the sake of those who are elect in regard to their faith, in regard to their knowledge of the truth. But notice then, that leads to godliness. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Because there's a definite progression here. Faith and knowledge are not the end result. Faith and an education about who God is is not the final step. There is more after that. And faith and knowledge are supposed to lead to spiritual growth and Christ-likeness, or as he calls here, godliness. This is the purpose of his apostleship. This is the role of his ministry. To serve God by promoting and protecting the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth of God. He wrote in Ephesians that God gave the the church, He gave them apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now we have the apostles' teaching. We have the shepherds and the teachers. Also that we, the church, those in Christ, may be edified may be equipped, may be built up. So the question is, for each of us, are we growing in faith and knowledge? Are we taking advantage of the opportunities before us? We are given opportunities. We have the apostles' teaching. We have the shepherds. We have many teachers. We have many people who will help grow us in faith and in knowledge. Are we taking advantage of that? Are we coming ready to listen? Are we, are we even coming to the times when it's, or is it, well, you know, it's okay, I've got other things to do. This, 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 is, this is an advantage. This is an opportunity that God gives to us. And even as a teacher, as a shepherd myself, I look at this and I ask the question, am I building up the church in faith and knowledge? Am I, grow, am I helping you to grow? Am I giving you things that matter? Or is it drivel? Is it entertainment? Is it, is it make you laugh? But, doesn't help you, doesn't move you on to godliness. Are we taking advantage of the opportunities? Am I teaching and, 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 and shepherding as Paul felt he should? But finally, is the knowledge that we have leading to godliness? Your spiritual education. Many of you came this morning an hour early for Sunday school. We study the Bible. We get into the, the nitty-gritty, the, the, the nuts and the bolts of the, of the Bible. We're sitting here and we, we devote a, a significant portion of our worship time to hear God's Word explained and taught and presented in such a way that we might understand it. But is that it? Or is it moving us on to godliness? Because that's what knowledge and faith are intended to do. Knowledge of God, true faith, will promote, will lead, will yield godliness. So ask yourself the question, is my spiritual education yielding in me a godlier life? I know more than I did before, maybe a year ago or five years ago. Am I godlier than I was a year ago or five years ago? Am I growing in the likeness of Christ? But then notice number two, in just a short time, and I knew that I would run out of time, and so I don't, I don't plan to try to get to the very end of this. 
But in verse number two, all of this that he has said is grounded in something. Grounded in the hope of eternal life. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God who, lie, who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested His Word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Hope here is not this wish. I hope I have eternal life like I hope I get a new bike for Christmas or I hope it's you know we have a snow day if you're a student or whatever it may be. This is not a wish. It is a confident expectation. When the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of a confident expectation that has not arrived, but you can count on it now, even though you haven't seen it yet. And this was what drove Paul's ministry. This is what grounded him in his apostleship and in his service to God was a hope in Christ, a hope in eternal life. He wrote at the beginning of his letter to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That was his hope. That was his desire. Read Galatians and Philippians and he talks about, I want to know Christ. I want to gain these things. Therefore, his present work was based on a future expectation. He says in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, uh, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For, who hope. for hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is what Paul ground his ministry in. But this is also the ground of every Christian's faith and knowledge is the hope eternal life. And notice very quickly in the remaining moments that we have, this is eternal life that has been promised by a faithful God. A God who never lies. As Hebrews says, it is impossible for God to lie. He promised it before, the time, before time began. Before the ages. Which means that the redemption plan, the salvation of God's elect, the hope of salvation is not a new thing. It was not something God thought of as an afterthought. It was something that was designed before the ages began. And this eternal life is also revealed by God in the Gospel at the proper time. This is manifestation of the Word. This, this Gospel, this, this presentation of Jesus uh, is not just speaking of the, 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 the whole Bible in and of itself, but of the good news of the Word that was made flesh dwelt among us. It's the whole good news of the Gospel of Christ. And it's this Gospel that Paul was entrusted with. So I just very finally want to ask, do you have the hope of eternal life? Do you have a confident expectation that eternal life is yours? Is hope the basis for your knowledge? Is hope of eternal life the basis for your service? Is hope for eternal life the basis for your worship? Is the ground for everything that Paul did you have the hope. Hebrews 6.19 calls this hope a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Keeps us. Are you trusting in the faithfulness of God? Are you resting in His promises? Are you confidently anchored in the work of Christ on His behalf? This is why Paul labored. This is why Paul wrote this letter. We'll get into more that he talks about very specific and it deals with every single person within the church. But it all begins right here. 
He's talking about a group of people called the elect. And he's writing for their benefit so that they might grow and increase in their faith, their knowledge, and ultimately their godliness. Now again, we go back to the beginning is what I said. Crete wasn't a place that was easy to live like a Christian. And yet, the Gospel made a difference in making them Christians. And what Paul wrote and will continue to write is that the Gospel is what's going to keep them. The Gospel is what's going to uh, make them into Christ's image. It didn't just convert them and then have to let them figure it out on their own. These are people who live in the world but must no longer to continue to live like the world. And the Gospel is what's going to make that happen. We live in a world that is wicked and immoral and ungodly. We don't live like the world. We don't have to. And if we're growing in knowledge and faith, we won't. So ask yourself, honestly, look at your life. Am I growing? Am I learning? Am I learning more of the Bible than I knew last week, last last year, five years ago? Or am I pretty much the same? But then after that, am I growing from that knowledge? Is it making me any better? Or Do you remember when you were in high school and you were sitting in that class that you hated? Maybe it was history class. Maybe it was geometry. I don't know what it was. And you thought, how in the world is this going to help me in life? And you thought, I know I'm going to learn all these facts just so I can write it on answer on a test and then forget it all. I surely hope that's not how we read the Bible. I just need to know more facts so that I can get candy at Sunday school, so that I can make it through another church service, so that I can know the answers. Or did you ever take a class in school when you thought, I'm going to use this. I can tell now. I'm going to use this one day. I need to pay attention because this is going to help me. And, 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 and you, 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 you were able to absorb the information and quickly put it into practice and say, this is so relevant to me right now. That's the Word of God. It is profitable. It is beneficial. It is necessary. And it will grow us and move us along. into the, this, is, this is how God chose to make us into the image of Christ. Through the preaching of His Word. That's what Paul gave his life to. And that's what Paul is writing his letter to Titus to. May we as God's people recognize the opportunities that we have before us in His Word avail ourselves to them, make every opportunity as, as, as much as we can to read the Word, to study the Word, to know the Word, and to be changed by the Word, to His honor.